This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers with your gumboots on. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. G'day and welcome to Countrywide. I'm Luke Radford coming to you from Bendigo on Jar Jar Wurrung land. Well, it's not great news for growers, but it is exciting times for mango lovers everywhere because as the season gets underway, the price has crashed. Prices have come back you know, probably $10 a box in the last week, basically. Yeah, so it's been a fairly quick move, so to speak. You'll hear a little bit more about that coming up in the program and also later on we'll dive into this week's big controversy surrounding changes at the Bureau of Meteorology. But first, today it's the news that most of South East Australia has been waiting for. The big wet could be coming to an end. After nearly three years of rain and flood events, the ensemble of wet climate drivers, led of course by a triple La Nina, is rapidly breaking down. With more, here's ANU climatologist Professor Jeanette Lindsay. What's going on is actually part of the sort of normal um, coming to a close of one of these events. Uh, basically, La Nina events and El Nino events as well, actually, are, are tied in with the cycle of the seasons. And as we go through summer and then head towards autumn, these events break down. And that has happened even over the last few years. We've had several La Ninas on the trot, as everybody now knows very well. Um, but each one of them has gone back down towards neutral conditions starting about this time of the year and reaching neutral by about March or April. And that's normal. What's happening with the current event is that we're seeing the beginning of that weakening. So when we look at the Pacific Ocean, the key sort of characteristic of a La Nina event is a huge pool of water that's below average temperature right across from the Central Pacific towards the Americas, whereas around Australia, we've got warmer than average water and we've had record high sea surface temperatures around the northern and eastern coast of Australia this this last um, spring and then into summer currently. But underneath the surface, that's where a lot of the really important action is happening. So when we look down below the surface of the Pacific, and we've got data to do that, we can see that the warm uh, water that's at the surface is supported from below off the Australian coast, so it's mm-hmm. warmer down there too. And then over into the, the uh, central and eastern Pacific, it's also colder down below the surface. Now that cold pool under the surface is shrinking. And that has been helping to maintain the overall pattern of La Nina all these months. But that's now shrinking and the warmer water is starting to move under the surface out into the Central Pacific from the Australian end of things. As that comes to the surface, that's going to start breaking down that big cold pool. Probably around about the end of February, we should be looking at the event coming closer to neutral. It will have come off its big peak of La Nina 
definitely. But look, we've got the rest of summer to go through, and it's not going to disappear instantly. What's happened in the Indian Ocean is quite different. The Indian Ocean dipole, which has been negative and has been feeding warm, moist air across the continent of Australia for months, uh, that has broken down, and that tends to break down more quickly. Mm. Um, And it's all tied in with the monsoon in the tropics and all that kind of thing. ANU climatologist Professor Jeanette Lindsay speaking there about how the climate drivers behind recent wet weather are beginning to finally slow down. So that wet weather that we've been seeing really for the past six months at the very least, uh, finally looking like it could potentially be coming to an end. And of course, all that wet weather has been both a blessing and a curse for Australia's grain growers. It's fueled massive crops, but flooding in New South Wales and Victoria, and as well as the disease pressure that's come as a result of it, has stopped the crop just short of record levels, according to the national commodity forecaster, Abares. Clint Jasper has this report. Despite La Nina's third appearance in a row and the wet, cold conditions it brought to the East Coast, ABARES Executive Director Dr Jared Greenville says nationally things are looking good. Yeah, it's certainly been an eventful year this year um, and I guess as the season continues we're seeing overall some pretty good conditions like when you take a national kind of perspective and we're forecasting that the gross value of agricultural production is going to be pretty much on par with the record that it set last year at $85 billion. Abares forecasts the national winter grain harvest at 62 million tonnes this season. Favourable conditions in WA and South Australia have helped raise bumper crops, 23.8 million tonnes in the West and 11.2 million tonnes in SA. Both will be record breakers if those numbers are achieved. And they've more than offset the smaller harvest expected to come out of New South Wales, where devastating floods and challenging conditions during the season have led Abares to forecast a harvest of 13.2 million tonnes, about 30% less than last year's best on record for the state. In Victoria, crop damage and losses in the north will be more than offset by better conditions in the Mallee region. In total, Abares has forecast winter grain production to rise 15% off last year's crop to 10.7 million tonnes. And Queensland's winter crop production is forecast at 2.9 million tonnes, which would make it the second largest on record, while summer grain production is also tipped to lift 5% to 2.6 million tonnes. But this year, farmers have paid huge bills for their inputs, and Dr Jared Greenville says that'll weigh on profitability. We're expecting that to decline from last year. So last year we saw some record levels of farm profits across the country. But this year going in, although we, we haven't got our full survey results back, But based on what we're observing in terms of fertiliser prices, which have been around three times above what they might otherwise be, um, we're expecting that to squeeze out quite a lot. Dr Greenville says high commodity prices combined with strong overseas demand is tipped to push farm exports to a record-breaking $72 billion. Countries and and other buyers have really turned to Australia as being a fairly reliable producer of food. Um, And we've seen that continue and so that's that's been a, a I guess a bit of a reason why we've been able to export or that demand side has been so high and that's really kind of contributed to the high export pace. Some of the most acute impacts of the wet cold spring have been felt by vegetable farmers along the Murray River. Victorian onion grower Peter Shadbolt has been struggling with this year's harvest. Getting bogged two three times a day sometimes. Last week we were bogged at three o'clock in the afternoon and we didn't get out till 10 30 that night and normally we would We've never been bogged harvesting onions before ever, so it's certainly bringing a whole lot of new challenges. While prices are high, so are the bills. 
Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. You get a bit excited when you see the prices of what you're getting and then you get the bills for the fertiliser and the diesel and all those things have gone up by so much. Some of Peter Shadbolt's onions end up in Melbourne wholesaler Michael Piccolo's warehouse. It's, it's a high rise. I mean, this time of year, usually we're purchasing onions, 10 kilo onions for maybe $7 a bag. Now we're purchasing, you know, close to 20. And the especially high prices are expected to stick around till after Christmas. From what we're gathering and from what we're hearing from growers and wholesalers, I think it'll push through to probably the end of Jan, Feb. So it's probably a two-month thing. Leading up to Christmas, it'll be high prices. And then I think after Christmas, we'll start to see them settle, but they'll still be pretty high. But rest assured, growers and wholesalers are nearly certain the $10 iceberg lettuce won't be making an appearance on the Christmas shopping list. Clint Jasper ending that story with additional reporting from Francesco Salvo. And of course, it really has been a year of the haves and the have-nots when it comes to that kind of harvest, because as we heard there, the input cost, the actual cost of, of growing the crop this year is so high that even for those who have had a fantastic year this year, they're probably not going to make a significant amount of profit on top of that, just purely by how much everything has cost. And for those who've lost crop in, in the floods or from disease damage, uh, the damage is going to be so much higher. You're listening to Countrywide. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. Well, the mango harvest has started earlier than expected for many growers in far north Queensland due to a hot, humid spring, but it's been overshadowed by a crash in prices. The Northern Territory and Burdekin seasons have run behind, which leading to an overlap and a glut in supply as the far north joins the competition. Machilba grower John Nardi is about halfway through his KP harvest and has started on R2E2, varieties of mango, and he says the prices are the lowest he's seen in three years. Prices have come back, you know, probably $10 a box in the last week, basically. Yeah, so it's been a fairly quick move, so to speak. What's caused this crash in prices? So I think it's been generally across the board, it's been you know, a strong crop in all regions. Obviously, Darwin and Catherine experienced, you know, very heavy rainfalls and that impacted fruit quality and sort of extended their harvest a bit as well. The Burdekin area is probably running a little later than normal as well. So it's sort of, they're just, you know, really coming into their volumes now or about to get into their volume. So that is coming, you know, pretty much impacting on top of our season as well. So there's going to be, I think the fruit numbers, you know, volumes in the market are going to be a bit stronger than we would like to see. You know, typically we are normally sort of separated by a few weeks from the other regions, but there seems to be a bit of an overlap. We're still in a bit of a transition stage now because the bigger volumes are really just sort of coming into the markets now. So I guess over the next week we'll see where that settles. Which markets are most affected? It does depend on varieties as well. So the Archer E2 market is very poor this year as well pricing wise but you know that's a bit of a combination of you know low export very difficult to get freight or expect freight is expensive so export numbers are certainly you know restricted by that um the higher price to land over there and prices out of the market with the air freight and everything as well so r2e2s are there's a lot of fruit in the market at the moment and they're probably seeing the prices on r2s are that particular variety of are lower than normal for this time of year so that's one of the challenges we have with the um, limitation we have on export, I suppose. How does this price compare to the last few years? I think it's probably the lowest I've seen for three or four years, yeah. 
Yeah, last year was prices were pretty strong. Crop was down quite a bit across the board for most growers, and I guess the regions were a bit more separated. The overlap is adding adding to the issue this year. How long will that likely last for? Do you think? I don't think it'll go up at least until into January sometime. There'll be good strong numbers of and volumes going into the markets for Christmas. So you know, the good thing for consumers and our customers are that you know there'll be strong supply going into Christmas. And given the you know the impact on stone fruit and cherries and things like that with the wet weather down south, that's probably going to increase. We're seeing a little bit increase in demand there for mangoes. We think that's going to sort of stay strong, I suppose. Uh, but given the extra volumes that we're seeing come through, you know that's a bonus for us. But there is going to be a lot of fruit there for that Christmas period, and those strong numbers will obviously have an impact on price. Let's hope everyone will help out by eating a lot of mangoes this Christmas. Is there anything else that can be done to help ease this problem? It's a tough one, and I guess you know, as a grower, we need to sort of make sure that we're um, doing our math well and making sure that what we're sending to market is viable, I suppose, and um, not over-supplying or adding more supply to the market that, that we need to, I guess. And that by that I mean grades, you know. we. You know, I'm not packing certain grades because I don't think it's going to be worthwhile. I'm putting it straight to juice and processing and things like that. So that's something that you know growers need to individually sort of work out for themselves, I guess. Do you think most growers saw this coming, this price drop and the oversupply, or has it come as a, as a bit of a disappointing shock over the past week? I think deep down everyone knew that uh, it was going to be a strong volume season. And obviously when, that, when we have strong volumes, price is never as good. But, you know, the reality is sort of only hit in the last week and we're sort of trying to anticipate where that might end up now. But, yeah, it's, it's hard and I guess, you know, we don't know where it's going to settle, I guess, at the moment. So it's, I wouldn't say it was a shock shock, but it's certainly not where we would like it to be anyway. How disappointing is it when you are getting ready to harvest all your hard work from the previous year and you see the prices sliding? It's terrible. I mean, there's a lot of very passionate growers out there that you know, put a lot of effort into growing good quality fruit. And you know, this is a very good quality growing region. We probably do a lot more work in our trees and our fruit than some other regions. Um, and that's just the growing nature up here. But you know, it's yeah, very disappointing, especially when you know, on top of the increased costs that we've had to endure over the last couple of years. It's, it's a struggle. <laughs> it really is. Matilda mangrove grower John Nardi speaking there with Tanya Murphy. Next, controversy at the Bureau. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. Well, let's turn now to the story that really dominated the first half of this week, which was involving, of course, the Bureau of Meteorology. In short, the Bureau has quietly moved to begin phasing out having its own meteorologists present weather on live radio, like your ABC programs, in favour of newly created community information officers who will take over the role. Now, of course, that's caused quite a stir, not least because the only way everyone actually found out about it was when it was reported in The Australian. To take us through it, we're joined by ABC. ABC Victoria Country Hour presenter Warwick Long. Warwick, welcome to Countrywide. Thanks for having me, Luke. Before we get into the actual reaction to this move, and there's been plenty of it, what do we actually know about what the Bureau's done? This has been the difficult thing to try and get the detail from the Bureau. We put in a number of requests over the week to try and 
just work out a lot of the nuts and bolts of what's going on. And it turns out we're not alone in wanting to get that information as well. But what we can tell you is that the Bureau has created this new position of Community Information Officer. It's been happening for some time, some months and this position is to do a lot of the weather crosses to various radio programs either on the ABC or on commercial radio programs. Hundreds of these are done every day by bureau staff and uh, to help with that workload on their meteorologists. We've heard that the bureau has created this uh, this new job where people who aren't actually qualified meteorologists, some of them can be, but others are not, actually present some of this weather to, weather information to programs. And they hadn't told even the people that are taking these crosses that these changes had been made. This is an interesting point. Senior ABC managers had told us that they didn't know this change had been made until their teams in some states started reporting that they were having difficulties either getting up crosses for the Bureau of Meteorology used to traditionally had been done within the the own state or within the region that the programs were coming from. Now, a lot of these had been centralised, so a lot of these uh, programs were now being told to to ring metropolitan areas well away, so in the Northern Territory, presenters being told to ring Melbourne, etc. And the ABC had to ask for a please explain from the Bureau of Meteorology on what changes had been made, and it was only then the Bureau came clean about what was being done. We got confirmation in late October that the the Bureau was planning on uh, making these changes to centralise their, their, their radio crosses. So there had been some discussions or some concerns beforehand in some of our regional stations that they were getting different um, different crosses from different locations, but there wasn't anything official. So we had a meeting with the Bureau in late October, on the 20th of October, and at that meeting they officially told us that they wanted their meteorologists to concentrate on the science and that they would be creating a central communications team to manage radio crosses that would be based um, in, in an East Coast capital city. Head of Regional, Rural and Emergency at the ABC, Hugh Martin speaking there. And full disclosure, Hugh Martin is the manager of the department that Warwick and I both work for. But Warwick, the interesting thing, of course, aside from this sort of lack of transparency, has been the reaction from the audience and the people the Bureau are usually speaking to. And I might just jump in with one more fact too, Luke, and and that goes to the issue of accuracy too. These community information officers are being introduced every day by radio programs as senior forecasters or meteorologists when they are in fact not that. And these programs weren't told about that whilst still contacting the Bureau, which is obviously a trusted source of information that wasn't being overly upfront on what changes had been made. But Luke, you are right, there has been a, a big reaction in regional areas from all sorts of people in the community about their concerns about this. And this goes to a number of areas. One is the Bureau provides an important service and on a lot of these crosses like the Country Hour or Morning Breakfast programs, uh, people either call or text in really region-specific questions for meteorologists on what the weather is doing and how it's going to work. And we're not just talking about decisions on whether I need an umbrella or uh, should I wear a jumper today. We're talking about real-life business decisions on whether farmers should be spraying for crops and if they if they get that wrong, they could damage their neighbour's property or even further afield and, and it can create a lot of problems there. And it also means what protection needs to be out for, for climate-exposed either crops or 
businesses or infrastructure that people are making decisions on every day from this information from bureau meteorologists. And they're questioning whether, you know, the information they're getting is from someone who's just uh, taught to be a good communicator rather than having that backup, that science knowledge in their mind to present that information. And that's an issue that people like David Joe Hinkey from the National Farmers Federation have raised. The bomb itself has always had meteorologists presenting in, in for my farming career, and it's been one of the highlights of why you do listen out for the um, those reports to come through. But it's also a question of trust. Look, at the end of the day, you want to know that um, we're getting the best service that we can because we are paying for it. It, it is a, it's a service provided to, to us as a taxpayer, so we just want to make sure that we're getting the best service possible for uh, critical information and agriculture relies on, is driven by the weather. And so we do rely on as best forecasts as possible, noting that, you know, it is that probability and conditions do change, but we want to get that best information as possible. Vice President of the National Farmers Federation and Victorian grain grower, David Joe Hinkey, speaking there. And Warwick, he touched on the accuracy and trust that you mentioned a little bit earlier, that um, the people who are actually listening to these crosses want to know that they're coming from a really reliable source. And this is a reliable source that has presented information in this year in this way for over half a century, at least to our knowledge, Luke. It's probably longer than that. I haven't actually gone through the history books of the ABC Radio, just living off uh, lived experience here. But we're, we're talking about a really long relationship of this information being delivered in a specific way from a specific skill set. And that is changing now. This is a major change in terms of how that information has been presented. It's a big deal. And it's a big deal that worries people like Lisa Ross, who lives in Gormandale in Gippsland, particularly over the issue of emergency services and getting reliable information at the right time. I'd rather have someone from the Bureau of Meteorology speaking as a professional particularly in emergency situations such as bushfires and storms. For example, we were in the 2009 Black Saturday fires, and the first thing that goes is your power. If our power goes, we can't use the internet at all. So therefore, the only thing that we can listen to is a radio. So everyone in the bush intently listens to their radio to get information from a professional about what's happening in their area. Gormandale resident Lisa Ross speaking there and raising some of her concerns with the changes to the way the Bureau of Meteorology does its radio forecasts on both ABC local radio and commercial branches. Uh, And of course, we're... To, to really cap all this off, we, we still have requests with the Bureau to come and explain these changes, but there are a lot of questions that still remain unanswered. Certainly so. And and to be uh, upfront, the Bureau has issued us a statement with a lot of information uh, about what it does day to day that I won't read to you. But in terms of the community information officer position, the Bureau has told us that they'll have relevant qualifications in meteorology, climatology, hydrology, communications environmental science and or engineering from Australian education institutions or or comparable overseas qualifications. So they will have some qualifications, but it's not really clear on, on how many from each field they're trying to employ. And saying wherever possible, the community information officers are based in the region of, of the broadcast. However, as the priority remains on providing accurate and timely information to enable better decision-making by the community, uh, everyone delivering radio crosses draws on 
local information and is fully briefed on local weather issues. That's the statement from the from the Bureau, but we've heard from radio presenters saying more often than not, they are being sent via diverts to people in, say, Melbourne or Sydney rather than in the States where they are broadcasting from. But they say the Bureau does have 90 staff around Australia delivering radio crosses, including community information officers every day. And obviously there is a large workload. There are hundreds of these crosses that are done every day and the Bureau has made that clear to us. That being said, despite the information the Bureau has sent us, the, the statement that Warwick was referring to there, we don't know at the moment who has been employed in these roles. We don't know their qualifications or where they're based. We have to take the Bureau's word on that for the time being. So there are plenty of questions still to be asked. Warwick Long, thanks for being with us. Thanks very much for having me, Luke. Warwick Long, host of the Victorian Country Hour. You're listening to Countrywide. From the paddock to the plate, Countrywide on ABC Radio. Well, some good news to finish the program today. We've had fire, we've had floods, we've even had plague in the last couple of years. So given it all, you might think that, logically speaking, next we'd be in for pestilence. But fortunately, despite some sightings of locusts in parts of South Australia and Victoria, at the moment, populations aren't breeding enough to generate a plague. I caught up with Dr Bertie Henneke, Chair of the Australian Plague Locust Commission, earlier. We get some reports in from some areas, particularly over in the Flinders Range uh, in South Australia and uh, the northeast pastoral district in South Australia, as well as the lower west district in New South Wales, from, I guess, uh, the community and farmers where we have a quite good network. And they're reporting that there are some sort of individual sort of uh, population outbursts or, you know, broader or bigger infestations popping up. But given that we had all this rain, Luke, it's, uh, that's not unexpected. And there are sort of isolated populations that pop up because the vegetation is there. There's quite a bit of for, for them to develop. Uh, so that's not unexpected. What does the flood do for the breeding of Australian plague locusts? The flood does, first of all, it increases the vegetation, you know. So in some areas, particularly in Victoria, it's actually... Um, have a huge impact. We we can't actually do at the moment surveys because uh, a lot of land is inundated by water. So with that in mind, the vegetation is not necessarily uh, growing at this stage, and therefore it's not a perfect habitat for for locals to actually develop too. But you know, once the flood will uh, you know go away, situation might change a little bit, and some populations will will probably build up again. But again, overall, we're expecting from the data we have that the population will actually stay fairly low in uh, across the sort of the entire area. And it's unlikely that we have sort of a, a broader outbreak until maybe later in spring. So for the next two or three months, uh, we're not expecting any high density infestations. Can the, the locusts themselves actually breed in those areas that are un- inundated? They can. And again, you know, on a broad scale, probably not. And, you know, that's what we're looking at. But there are, as I said before, some isolated pockets where some development can happen. And, you know, development happens over different generations and they're building up. But we see over recent years that actually the development period of each generation has slowed down significantly. So the populations are not sort of building up to 
the numbers that we had many years ago. And, you know, and particularly with the current La Nina situation too, that has with all the rain and all the, uh, the other aspects. And, you know, having basically still fairly low temperature until recently, that has really had a significant impact on the development itself. And we don't see high populations developing across across the range. Well, that's good news for the, the short term at the very least, but would there be any conditions that could come across even sort of this, this next part of summer that would set the plague locusts up to breed into a large population or are we pretty comfortable um, that we won't see that kind of outburst in the next sort of six months? We are actually overall quite comfortable that, that that's not happening and our modelling is actually sort of supporting that. Well, you know, it's based on our modelling really. And, you know, the, the reason for this is, as I said, over recent years, the development of locus has actually changed quite a bit. Uh, although we have at the moment a situation where we have quite a bit of rain, but, uh, you know, uh, quite a bit of rainfall and water around, but we're not expecting that that actually will bring up, you know, a significant outburst uh, in the population over, over, you know, the next three to four to five months. Dr Bertie Henneke from the Australian Plague Locust Commission speaking there with me a little bit earlier on. Well, that's all we have time for on this episode of Countrywide. If you'd like to hear more about today's stories, you can head online to the ABC Rural website or check out your local Country Hour. I'm Luke Radford. Till next time, keep it rural.